Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. All right, cool. Awesome. All right, you ready to roll? Yeah, man. Uh, looking forward. Looking forward to this. Okay, Arthur Noble on the Rider Flex podcast. I love that hat, Arthur. I, I noticed you wearing that in a few interviews. That's your. That's your thing, right? That's your style. Ah, uh, you know. Now we really dive into the personal stuff right away. But I had a hair transplantation two and a half months ago. <laughs> so what? I, ha- really? I have to. Yeah, so I have to wear it uh, for I would say another two and a half months, and then I'm uh, kept less. You can't, so you can't show us right now. You don't want to take it off right this second. I mean, uh, nah. <laughs> I, 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 I leave it. I leave it. Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> well, now, now I noticed your uh, LinkedIn profile picture has a full head of hair. Like, what, what happened? Did you? Yeah. What's the story? Bad, bad genes. That's uh, that, that's the story there. <laughs> no, but my father, the whole, the whole family of my father's side, basically they lost their hair pretty early. So um, actually, right in the middle of COVID in March, I, I was just talking to my wife and we were uh, chatting like, ah, now it's uh, it, it's getting worse and worse. And I <laughs> and I felt like, um, you know what? It's uh, it's it, it's COVID times. So let's do it right away. So just. Uh, booked yeah. a flight and one month later i was uh yeah i was completely bold but uh yeah they helped me well um not to go too far down this path but obviously <laughs> I, I i have a few challenges myself oh, um what's so they did something i don't know anything about it i'm totally ignorant to the topic but what do they do what do they they do some implants and then your hair grows back eventually is that the thing yeah exactly i mean they just um basically take 12,000 hairs out of your like uh, the back of the back of your head and then uh, they just uh, plant it like in in the, in the middle of it where I uh, basically had virtually no oh. hair anymore oh it's a, um, yeah I mean it took like uh, six hours or something oh. but uh, oh. but oh. but hardly hardly any pain it was ex- super easy okay is it super expensive um euro i think in dollars like eight thousand dollars or something but it depends how bold you are like i'm on the let's say (laughs) on the bad part but um i mean if you're just mothers i would say four thousand dollars oh all right does insurance cover it or no unfortunately it's private investment i tried i tried to (laughs) yeah 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 uh, okay, so you're tell us a little bit about your personal life. Um, so you're in the Netherlands, you're in Rotterdam. Uh, is that where you grew up? Is that where you're from? Yeah, exactly. Born and raised and lived, yeah, most of my life, small suburb. Okay, all right. What'd you folks do? My actually, I come from a more entrepreneurial, I, I would say traditional family. So my father is an, it's an, uh, it's, it's, it's an entrepreneur. Oh, and my mother is like, uh, was like a housewife. Uh, okay. Okay. Basically treated us really well, and um, 
Yeah, so the traditional side, I'd say. What'd your dad do? Can you go into it? Did he own a couple of businesses? Yeah, yeah so he did. actually he does like a couple of things, but he came from the oil business. So it was like a family business. So my granddad, um, he had actually quite a couple of children, like like 10. So uh, that was back <laughs> in the days. So he decided that that's, and he was actually um, uh, a captain. So he was, he, he was sailing. So he decided to basically build his own uh, family oil family business, um, mm. sort of like a, a like a tank station, but then on the water for for ships. So that's what they. Uh, so that's what he did. So my dad grew up there, and then eventually, he, um, he sort of left the family business and started uh, and became a trader. So like an oil trader on the on, on, okay. on stock exchange for um, yeah, like. Um, Let's say if you have Shell, if that's the major, basically it was more like a, a large, uh, a large um, mid player, and from yeah. there he transitioned into um, his his own business where he was. He's just sort of tra- trading oil. That's basically what he's doing, and gradually moved into uh, some other businesses on the side. Mm. And uh, did you think about going to work for your dad or your granddad uh, at all when you were younger, or did you? Yeah, no, we did. We had a conversations, but uh, my dad always said, you know, just follow your passion and what you like. And, uh, and somehow, um, even though it, it surprised me, I ended up in the, yeah, in, in, in the tech and finance world, which, I mean, yeah. if I had expected two things, it was not exactly not that. <laughs> <laughs> How many siblings, brothers and sisters you got? Just one brother. One brother. Okay. One brother. And, you're mar- and you're married, you said. Uh, any kids? Yeah, it's no, no, not yet, not yet. No, I, I married in 2019 with Anna Marie, oh. and um, happily before COVID, so everything right. was just uh, just smooth. But uh, no, just uh, lucky the two of us. So you got married, and then you were trapped in the same house 24 hours a day for like four months. <laughs> exactly, COVID. and we still ma- we managed to. So it uh, it has to last forever now, right? <laughs> uh, what's your wife do? She's um. She's, she's actually helping teenage mothers. So you have like uh, sort of, uh, you have teenage mothers who live like in a community house mm-hmm. and will have like problems who cannot live at home anymore uh, because of yeah, different reasons. Like they either don't have parents or abusive or like problematic relationships or adoption or whatever. And then basically she, she takes care of them and is a bit of like a mentor to them uh, saying like, okay, you know, this is how you have to, let's just structure your life a bit, helping with raise the babies and, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty different, and also very impressive what she uh, what she sees every day. So she's a very patient, loving person, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very, very good. What's the biggest difference? I'm I'm assuming you've been to the states yeah. a few a few times. I'm assuming you've been over to the U.S. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've been actually only once, but I've been to New York. Okay, what do you think the biggest difference is? I mean, I'm sure there's a we could do a whole podcast on it, but if you had to pick two or three between the, you know, where, where you're at, uh, in the Netherlands and, and the United States, what would you say? Top, top three differences. One of the things which and we might talk uh, about later, but like what I saw in the book that I've written and where I like invited, uh, I would say pretty well known people in the space, uh, in, in, in the tech space, they really came across to me like very open-minded uh which okay. which is something uh, and very opportunistic like okay sounds great it's a great opportunity let let's do it that is something i uh i found as um as a nice difference i would say that 
particularly in, in, in my field, that it's maybe less about the marketing story, but it's more about uh, the um, come down to, to the numbers, the process a bit more like factual rather than storytelling, mm. which might be like a, also like a broader difference. Um, mm. Interesting. And in general, okay. in general, I, I'd say that traditionally speaking, I would say the US is a bit more individualistic compared mm. to like Europe, but I've, I've really seen sort of like, I mean, culture is getting more global. And uh, from, from there, you see that difference getting smaller and smaller. Mm. Okay, yeah, just curious. All right, very good. Okay, so you end up going to Rotterdam to, to, to college. Now, when you first entered school, did you know what you wanted to do at, when you first started? Or you're just like, ah, I'm just going to get a business administration degree. I don't really know what the hell I want to do for a living. What were you... <laughs> 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 no it was actually i had almost ended up actually when i was sort of like 15 i wanted to become like the prime minister and i had high hopes for myself that it would become one one day really really uh, yeah okay. I, I i i thought so so when i was like 17 i i, I thought i was going to study like political uh, studies but then figured mm. out that even though i liked it as a sort of as a hobby but okay. in all honesty it's it wasn't really my, uh, my my cup of tea in terms of job. So I thought, let's do something else. And uh, I thought, let's go for the business uh, studies. Okay. And you get out of school. And how do you end up getting into VC? Like, how does that happen? Uh, walk us through your early career. Yeah, it's first pretty much unplanned. And it's funny that because I, I'm quite a planned person. So I thought, you know, like all different routes. Um, but in the end, in the end, you end up something you didn't plan, plan for. But Actually, after my bachelor's uh, in the Netherlands, you have um, pretty much in Europe, you have this bachelor master system where almost everyone does a master's um, because if you don't do a master's, basically, it's hard to get into any serious job, uh, so, so so to speak. So between my, after my bachelor's, I did like a gap year just to figure out what I liked. Um, so I f first thought, let's go on the traditional route and try like a corporate because it was really different from where I came from as a family, but I still wanted to try it out as a nice hypothesis. So I, I started uh, at Unilever, um, an FMCG company, and uh, in, in the sales department, and pretty much after six months figured out like this wasn't the thing for me, too much in the box. And then uh, I read well one night about Rocket Internet, which was uh, back then, I would say, at its peak. So they are like an incubator and uh, sort of they copy paste that uh, every famous business model in Euro in, in the US <laughs> and then transplanted it to um, basically to Asia and Europe. So I, I joined that very exciting period as, as an operator. Um, I worked for a price comparison company, um, did a few other projects. And then I really learned from one boss at Rocket Internet that he came from this McKinsey background and he had this really top-down view on the business. And okay. I, you know, as an operator, had really this sort of bottoms-up approach. Mm. And I really felt like, okay, this top-down approach is pretty cool. Um, I want to learn that as well. And I'm not really going to learn that in the... Um, as an operator here uh, with, with my current background. So let's okay. try to see where I can get in, where I can learn that. And then I was in the Netherlands and I thought, oh, let's try VC. And back then in 2015, this wasn't like a well-known career path eh, for someone with business administration background because everything was focused on something else. And I just did a cold call and said like, hey, you know, I mean, I've done this and this. I'm very interested in, uh, in like an internship or any opportunities. Then the guy said, yeah, the guy who's in charge of it is not here yet. But I thought he thought about that for a while back. Oh, let me ring you back. And he just called me back a few hours later. And 
yeah wow. so the few months after i started as the first ever intern wow how about that okay very good all right and then um after you worked a couple of places you you started your own thing right you you were not you 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 decided and that probably came from your grandfather and your father you, you had a little entrepreneurial bug right so you're like i want to try my own yeah I... <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely go ahead yeah so i mean after one year in VC, I thought that yeah, I pretty much know know how to do it. I know the VC side, know the operator side. Let's uh, let's start this business. I really had this passion, this drive, you know, from from within to do it. And I went on a world trip after I did my um, my my masters, and then mm. I thought like I really want to combine work and travel. That's uh, that's my my main passion, I'd say, and most I expensive see. hobby. Okay. From there, I founded uh, a company basically that had a vision to enable uh, work and travel through uh, making remote work more accessible to the masses. And this is before everybody started working remotely, right? So you're, yeah, you're exactly. Yeah. It, was a cl- <laughs> it was a classic example of being too early to the market. <laughs> Flexpat was the name of the company, right? Did it, did it um, support you? Did it did you get it big enough to where it was actually paying you or it was startup the whole time? And the, you know, where, how far did you get it? Yeah. So it was a startup the whole time uh, in the beginning, uh, maybe like the concept in itself, what we saw on the one hand that there is like many people want to work remotely and want to adopt this digital nomad lifestyle. And on the other hand, we saw many cor- corporates and companies having problems uh, getting digital talent. So we mm-hmm. thought, why don't we just uh, go to companies and say, like, we have a huge pool of people that want to work remotely for you. Uh, you know, they work in certain uh, conditions that we that we look after, and then you basically can get really great talent, which you find hard to get right now. Uh, for instance, let's say a big insurance company. Um, so we focus initially on on the user side of things, on getting like uh, big talents in there. So um, that that went pretty good. So we got like. What was it like 10,000 talents for just 15 cents <laughs> per sign up? So that was like ridiculously uh, cheap, and there was a lot of interest from the market. And then we focused on the uh, on the other side of the market, which were which were companies, which proved to be much deeper. Yeah, I would say very hard. And in the meantime, we raised uh, we raised some funding from uh, from seven angel investors, oh. uh, while being pre-revenue at at that time. Um, yeah, we grew the team to between 10 and 20 people. Oh, really? On the period that we were in. Um, All right. But, you know, I made the mistake of prematurely scaling, among others. Um, So when the companies basically weren't excited to to hire lots of talent from us, we uh, we pivoted a few times. Uh, We had some sort of remote working trips that we organized, and we booked some revenue with that. But it wasn't substantial to to really scale the business. Okay. So we thought in the end, like, uh, okay. Let's um, basically let, let, let's pay our creditors and um, and end here. So you were able to to uh, pay the money back to the investors, not, not to the inv- not to the investors, but to all the others. So that's okay. still uh, not a not a, that's not like a real liability I have, but the moral liability yeah. I still have. Yes, right. I mean, you probably still lose sleep at night over that. Sometimes I'm guessing it probably still bothers exactly. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, definitely was. Uh, and probably some, I'm, I'm guessing some friends and family in that, in that early group. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. As well. I mean, I lost some money myself uh, as well, which of course is, is obvious, but uh, yeah. But you learned a ton. I mean, probably uh, so many learning lessons in that two or three years right there. Uh, right. I mean, that was like 
a full-blown master's degree, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, it's almost like you got your doctorate right there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I sort of uh, describe it as sort of I know the hype and the disillusionment of, of running a startup now. It's uh, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen both sides and yeah, it was very valuable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now were you married at the time when you did this? No, but I, I got to uh, got to to meet my uh, yeah my then girlfriend during that during that no, ride. Yeah, uh, during that time, but not through the company. Okay, she's probably thinking, okay, yeah, you're cool and all, but you're running a business that's not making any money, so I don't know if I want to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> so I quit the business directly, found a job. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so then, all right, so you closed down the business. You had to go back to work in a regular job. All right, was that tough for you? Extremely hard, extremely hard, because mm. you you come to learn that I've never been a generalist all my life, so um, I'm basically. I'm good at sort of the broader perspective, but I didn't have like a specific skill. So mm. finding a job at the level that you wanted without going to like back to the super early stage startups, mm. that's, that proved to be much more difficult than I thought. Mm. Okay. How did you end up at Knight Capital? That's pretty interesting, actually. Um, so after my company, I joined uh, quite quickly a growth and strategy uh, consultancy firm. And it was there like a couple of months in there. And I sort of specialized in, uh, uh, among others, like uh, growing on LinkedIn. Oh. So um, back in the day, I was just trying out, testing with a few tools. And it's maybe good to know that one of the partners, Paul, I had spoken to him like in the past, so we already knew each other. So I had actually made like a post on LinkedIn and I boosted it through like a few growth hacks. And so it got, I would say, uh, got quite a, quite a few views. Okay. And he saw, and basically he, he came across that post. And yeah, at that time they were um, basically, they just closed like a new fund or they were about to close like a new fund. And he felt like, okay, now just ask how Arthur is doing. And um, so we, so we, so we came back in, uh, came back in touch. That was on a Thursday evening. So I had like a first chat with him on a Monday. Then the second chat with, uh, with, with Paul and Diederik, uh, his other uh, partner on Wednesday. On Thursday, we got the case. Then on Friday, I, uh, I did a case. And on Saturday, I was in my plane or going on my honeymoon, <laughs> finishing <laughs> my case. And basically, when I landed, I sent it over. And then on uh, a Monday, uh, we basically agreed on, uh, on, on the contract. So it was like super fast. Wow. So that's how, uh, that's how a full that. story. Plus, I mean, you had the experience of trying to start your own business and going through that, which is super valuable to Knight Capital, right? For what they do for a living. Why don't you... Give me a, a quick uh, three-minute Knight Capital overview. Go for it. Yeah, definitely. So um, Knight Capital is a B2B software investor um, based in Amsterdam, but investing across Europe. It's founded by um, all, all the entrepreneurs. Um, I would say the thing that we like to stress most is that we're go-to-market specialized. So sales, marketing, scaling that up in your series A and B stage. That is really where we, uh, where we tend to specialize on, but also like to help um, found founders with. So generally speaking, we're on the entrepreneurial side. I mean, we've been through the roller coaster ourselves. Uh, we, we tend to be quite quick and basically have the investor that we always uh, wa wanted to have for ourselves. And so far, we raised, we, before we were an incubator, but from last year, um, from January onwards, we, um, we we got this Series A to B um, focus. 
what we do right now. And we have now invested in one US firm uh, mm. called Stream and um, four investments in Europe um, for, for, for my current uh, funds. And I hope to close and like another investment soon. How big is the current fund or can you share that? Yeah, no, sure thing. It's uh, it's 50 million, five zero. Okay, okay. And out of the four companies you've invested in, four or five, how many did you pass on, roughly? Oh, I mean, this morning, one teammate's colleague told me that we now have 17,000 companies in our CRM system. <laughs> so so uh, no, we have like a big nurture, nurture list as well. But we've seen a bunch of companies since March last year. Uh, uh, not, to, not to like you know, bum you out if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, man, I'm going to send my stuff. I'm going to send my deck to Knight Capital. Uh, well, go ahead. But uh, whew, man, your percentage of chances of getting looked at are, are tough. Or what? Is, so tell me, I mean, I know we could do a whole podcast on it, but generally, what are you looking to invest in a certain stage, a certain level, a certain volume, a certain industry? What are you looking to invest in? Yeah, so I would say we're always flexible as, as every investor would claim, but let's just to give like a few rule, rules of thumb um, that, that we try to do is a series A and B, we define that, let's say anywhere between one and 5 million uh, annual recurring revenues to so be a B2B SaaS um, company, of course, growing over hundred um, percent, that being on, on, on the low end of the spectrum. Um, of course, you know, we look to all types of other metrics, but which I think what is a major thing for us is looking uh, to a replicable sales model so that you really invest the money and afterwards it, it starts scaling and there is like a process, um, basically a proven process, which is now replicable and is moving towards predictability. Mm. And obviously, uh, I think like as any investor, we try to invest in, in, in large markets where you have like a strong competitive uh, advantage with, with founders that you can really sort of give the keys of the car uh, that you help them where where necessary, but that you don't have uh, to really intervene in 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 their business in their business in a sort of negative way. Are you taking control of the cap table, or do you take a, a minority stake? Yeah, always a minority stake, and in, in some deals we lead them. Uh, so we've basically done deals where that we lead that we led for like twenty percent, but. What we also do is just being a, um, a co-investor, and then you know we can go all the way down to f- to five percent in a in, in a company. We rather be, be like in, in a great company where we can have like some shares than uh, necessarily being the lead. Okay, and you don't care if it's tech or service or CPG or whatever. Are you looking at everything? Yeah, so as long as it is B two B SaaS, and I oh. would say we ge- we generally tend to skip uh, really deep tech products because. Okay. That is, uh, we don't have someone in the team right now who has like this tech background to that extent. B2, okay, B2B SaaS, doing about $2 million a year, strong founder team. They took on some seed money or some angel money and now they're looking for a series A. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, okay very good. And by the way, if people want to, uh, do they reach out to you personally on LinkedIn? Should they just go? Is there like a form? It's, by the way, it's night.capital. Night.capital is the URL. Just go to night.capital yeah, or, or, yeah, how do you prefer? Um, I mean, people can email me at author at night.vc. They can, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn okay. is usually, which I like to go to, um, go to for me. You can also go to the website, fill out a contact form, but just personal reach out um, to get it with introductions work best. 
How about investing in a really cool, growing, profitable recruiting firm based in the U.S.? Uh, I, I Sounds amazing, huh? <laughs> I heard of them. It's called Riderflex. How about that? I'm gonna send you. A, I'm gonna send you my uh, a company brief. No, I'm just. I'm just messing around. Um, okay, so you're in. Are you in, you're enjoying your time there at Night Capital? But what on the side? You're like, okay, I want to write a book. Uh, how did the Let's roll into the book. Tell me how it came about. Uh, and by the way, for the listeners right now, before I forget, let me just say this. You can find it on Amazon and I'm sure I'm sure other places, but it is on Amazon. Leaders of Growth, 47 firsthand stories on growing companies across Series A to C um, by Arthur Noble. Uh, you can find it on uh, Amazon. But talk to me, Arthur. How'd the book come about? Walk me through some stuff there. Yeah, so so one thing um, I would say I'm the um, yeah I'm the co-author, so I did it together with Diederik and and Paul, basically taking the lead in this in this project. But uh, sort of how how, we, how it came across is, I think we were just brainstorming. We had picked our tagline, helping founders getting from Series A to Series B and beyond. And from there we were thinking like, okay, it would be great to also more substantiate that claim. And we do that, of course, you know, when we help founders, we try to be active on LinkedIn to support with content, we do it to our newsletter, like mm. a bunch of things that we do, but how can we really like, like substantiate that claim, as said. So we had a spontaneous idea to write a book and it wasn't really well defined to, to, to some extent. But then I came in touch with some people who participated in the book um, and we had this chat and I said like, okay, now we're, we're going to write the book. It's on, the, on this and this topic. Um, are you willing to contribute? And they said, yes. And basically the story that, 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 we, that we shared with them was we talked with lots of founders. Uh, Sometimes they ask us questions, uh, but also from our own entrepreneurial times. Eh? We know that just getting advice from others is, is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And what we see that on the one hand, if you're in a seed stage company, there is a lot of content, for instance, at the Lean Startup at Eric Ries, like great content, and there is it's much more out there. Um, and there's also a lot of great content on, on the other end of the spectrum. Let's say Mark Zuckerberg uh, sharing how we built Facebook, for instance, um, like the super big success stories for companies raising hundreds of millions. But this sort of in-between states, I would say Series A to Series C, broadly defined, one to 25 million uh, euros in annual revenue. There is not a lot of content available in that. Whereas on the other hand, uh, we noticed that from the companies that raise a seed round, only 7% manages to get like to a Series C round. Mm. So we see there is like quite a big, uh, quite a big gap there in, in, in the market. And we don't pretend, you know, to solve everything with that through this book. But we thought, you know, why don't we just ask people who are, let's say, 12 to 24 months ahead of where a founder or operator is today and ask them uh, to share their challenges, how they deal with it and on a variety of topics. And by that sort of de de democratize sort of the, the insights from these uh, from these experts. So you're already visiting with people all the time and looking at decks and proposals already because of what you do for a living at night capital. So the content for the book is naturally flowing in already, right? You're, you're cause you already got the material. Now you're just, you're taking that information that you're, you're discovering during all these conversations and you're like, Hey, 
okay, what are we doing with all this material? We might as well put out a book about it. Is that is that accurate? Um, to some extent, I think what we really try to do is, for instance, like if you look to Tim Ferriss, he has written uh, Tools of Titans, for instance. We took that really as an example, um, but then on startup growth. So we... Um, like our job as investor and former founders helps us to identify like the challenges that the company faces. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, those challenges we translated into questions. And these questions we asked to all the, all, all the people that contributed to the book. And then we basically wrote down what they said in a sort of edited format. Are the five companies you have invested in so far, are they part of the 47 in the, in the book? Actually not. Actually not, no. Okay. All right. And why because 47? We, 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 have, yeah. we have written the book for them. We have uh, written the book basically for them, uh, among others, also to get the broader insights. I see. Why 47? <laughs> we were thinking initially, like, you know, when would it be enough? And we thought we set a goal on 30. We thought that's the stretch goal, getting to 30 people, that that okay. would be nice. And then, you know, we were around 30 people and so many people were more interested and we got nice introductions from people willing to contribute. So we thought, let's just continue. Then at 40, it was like, okay, I really have to stop. But there were still a few people that I really wanted to get in. Uh, So, you know, then at 47, I said, okay, we're really going to cut it. And for a second edition or something, we can add more people. Ah, okay. Very good. All right. Your, Your specific tactical role at night capital are you the one looking at decks and saying or briefs or whatever we want to use are you the one looking at stuff checking yes no yes no or what what is your role i'm just curious yeah it's um i would say it's, it's pretty diverse so if like uh i would say some companies have let's say an operations role and you are uh, responsible for many sort of different little processes in a company. I would say that's most comparable to mine. So in my case, uh, I'm responsible in the end of the day for, for the sourcing pipeline, basically making sure that the team gets um, scouts, all the relevant companies uh, that, that we like to invest in. So that's one. The second element is basically sort of like end to end responsible for like investing in the company. So the, the evaluation process, and of course, uh, like I, I, uh, I involve uh, like uh, the partners in, in, in there as well, uh, as well as the entire team. And um, the third element is I'm on several, several boards um, of, of companies that we invest in. And um, yeah, then two small elements for me are like uh, marketing because of my background. Um, I basically ma- manage that uh, together with like uh, HR. That's... Uh, yeah, that's okay. also somehow got on my plate. Okay, okay, very good. I know we could do a whole podcast on this next question, but just for the listeners, can you give us just two or three most common mistakes you see in a in a pitch? And in and by the way, I don't know what word you want to use. Do you, do you call it an investor deck, a pitch, a company brief? I don't know what what language you're using uh, for it, but you know the, the initial the, the the initial document that comes over for yeah. somebody like night capital to review what are two or three most common mistakes you, you see i'm silent because it's a it's a very, very good question um usually market size i don't really take it into account because 
it's 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 always big, <laughs> but that's a that that's like a, a mistake. Uh, I I would say every investor would acknowledge it. I do usually think that not a lot of founders, uh, not founders, but a lot of companies explain well why they are ten x, or the or it's explained somehow in a bit of a, a cheap fashion. Um, so so I would say that that would be my number one, mm. and the and the second thing is you really want to show that you know really well this is like a proven acquisition process and uh, with this money we're really going to scale, going to scale this really quickly because that these are revenue drivers we know how to influence them um i would say that is something that uh, that they also see that uh, companies can improve on do you expect a one pager, what they call a, either a brief or a teaser. Do you want to see that before you see a full deck? And if, and then the second part of that question is when you do get a deck, how many pages do you want it to be? I don't care too much in a way. Um, I don't want a one page usually. I want like a, like an easy PowerPoint that I can just check uh, real, real quick where just like all the basic things like for instance Sequoia I think has made like a great example of like so what are the basic elements of a deck but so, so something like that um, 10 20 pages that you just go through quickly so that you have like an impression together with the website then and this is I would say more stage specific I like to see um, like a financial plan quite quickly so that I can just see um, okay what are a bit of like the um, the numbers? Because with that, um, in full transparency, we have like our investment criteria. Um, so even if I like a company, but it doesn't fit our investment criteria, we have to sell to our investors and in a VC fund. So I'm somewhat limited. So mm. I can, with that financial plan together with the deck, I can basically filter out, let's say, the... the um, like X percentage of, of, of the deals I get. And this is really sort of like a sales process or basically like recruitment, like you do, you filter out like candidates who ticks the boxes. Um, and I think those two things really help me. Um, and then I would say from the last 20, 30%, basically, yeah, that, 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 that passes those, those, those criteria, which for us are a bit like narrow. From there, you know, you, you engage in all the conversations and, uh, try to spend actually more time. So we are quite strict upfront uh, in order to spend more time with uh, with the other companies and really try to understand the business. And because um, they're working super hard on it, and so we don't want to waste time to founders where it's not a fit and have mm. lots of conversation that doesn't work. Then I'm rather upfront, like in the Dutch way, it's like super nice business, not really something for us. Uh, but if necessary, it can make an introduction to others uh, where it's more relevant. Um, but the business that are great, you know, you just want to spend the time with them and also uh, show appreciation to the founders who work day and night uh, on it. Are you saying that uh, the Dutch in general are straight and to the point and don't beat around the bush? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's funny. I was this morning, I was talking to like uh, to, to one of uh, to another company, our portfolio, and they said like, yeah, like I mean, as a Dutch, they are a bit more strict. It's uh, straightforward. 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 Yeah. By the way, I worked for a Dutch Basically, family. I worked for a Dutch family in a big giant uh, uh, greenhouse grow operation for bedding plants. They had like five or six facilities across the country, and uh, yeah, super super straight to the point. 
Uh, you know, I'd walk around, the founder would be walking through the building. He would just fire people like on the spot. He would, there was no like HR department. There was no conversation. There was no. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I, in our case, I would say very low, what I would say was straightforward is very low, uh, not really care about political mm. politics. So just re- just straightforward, transparent communication, low bullshit factor. Yeah. Um, just we're, we're all equal, uh, no, no hierarchy in a way, no, no room for egos. And then just, if it's good, you tell it's good. If it's bad, you tell it's bad. It's bad uh, yeah. And we're not going to blame you because it's bad, but we rather ask, you know, like, how can we help you? Um, uh, but just don't basically tell a beautiful story if it's not beautiful. <laughs> what if you, what if you, what if you're looking at a proposal and it doesn't meet the, I'm guessing there's whatever, 10, five, 10 pieces of criteria where you're like, okay, million or over in revenue or whatever what if you're looking at a proposal and it's missing one or two pieces of criteria but you already know the founders and you're like ah oh, man these guys i think they got something here but they're missing a criteria is it still pass or you'll you'll push it through really depends on the context but i one of the things really learned as an investor and all the investments that we've done no company was perfect so okay. all companies, I mean, mm-hmm. on, in, in the one hand, eh, like you have maybe a few factors that, you know, that are like the easy, the easy ticking the boxes thing, but then to really make the investment or maybe a thousand factors you take into consideration, not, you know, not aware of that, but, you know, uh, sub- subconsciously also many. Um, and none of the companies in the end of the day t- tick all boxes. And then as if, especially in series A, series B, it's still, uh, a business where you say like okay i know where the bet is and and i take it and for some companies um it's not so much about ticking the boxes it's more about having like a wow factor on on, on something so that you can say like hey i make the exemption exception because i really think that the company can outperform based on that wow factor how about this what's more common uh a or b um a there's a great company with a lot of potential that does a shitty job at preparing their deck or a company that has an awesome deck but no potential which one's more common <laughs> i would say really great companies will tend to be inclined more towards like the the a option because they're very okay. busy they let's okay. say I've seen companies with just, let's say, have like a very bad deck in, in the standards, but just show five or six graphs in there and they're all, let's say, <laughs> triple, triple, uh, like in a way, like really stellar. And then you're like, oh, wow, uh, this company obviously has traction. I have to know more on why that is. And then you basically get drawn into the funnel. Mm, okay. All right. And then, and, you help the them, current... and, then, and, and then you help them redo their deck so you can pitch it to your bosses. <laughs> Not... Not, not, not even, I think. I think the, the really great companies nowadays, they have sufficient funding options. Um, and it's much more about trying to get in that companies, explain which value you have as an investor. Um, mm. And the deck in itself, I would say, is more or less a conversation starter. So I personally don't care. So, I mean, it has to look okay-ish. It doesn't have to look, like, amazing. Okay. Okay, good to know. That's good to know. All right. Very good. Okay, so... Any uh, two or three pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting something, but they haven't, knowing that you've been through one yourself that was a tough ride, plus you visit with founders all the time in your job now. Anything you want to leave the listeners with on uh, 
aspiring entrepreneurial advice, two or three things, what would you tell them? Be prepared for the heights and the lows. So that is, I would say, very, very important. Uh, don't think it's a glamorous ride. It's uh, <laughs> before we started talking about my hair, but I definitely lost most of my hair during <laughs> during that journey. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the second part is because, you know, it's going to be hard. And I'm basically referring that to, uh, to, to some of the guys that also participated in the in, in, in book that we've written is a couple of things. Um, Get a mentor, surround yourself with very strong support networks so that you can actually mm -hmm. deal with the highs and lows. Um, manage your agenda really strict so that you uh, keep loving what you uh, keep doing, what you love. Um, focus on on the, on, on the right things, um, as well as just dedicating time eh, for for sports so that you so that your quality of mind. Uh, what what I learned from someone is, uh, is 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 really good. So I think that is super important. And another thing which I also learned the hard way is that if you start out a company, don't recruit too soon. But if you do if you, if you do it, really spend a lot of time on someone that has the exact sort of working mindset as, as, as you do, because that's going to determine basically the, the, re the rest of the culture. And it just makes such difference if someone is just pushing like, the max compared to someone who sees it more as a job mm -hmm. gotcha okay very good advice my friend okay now as we uh, move towards wrap up here i want to ask you a couple more questions about the netherlands compared to the states uh what what i'm always i'm always i always love it when i get to talk to people from other countries what do what does the average person from the netherlands on average what does the average person from the netherlands think about Americans like what what's like a general response <laughs> that's a that's a good question um cocky know-it-alls that talk cocky know-it-alls that stick their nose in other people's businesses all the time no I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I would say there like our, our media is um was quite against Trump and pro-Biden so it mm. has um so dependent on the president, I would definitely say it, it changes um, quite a bit. Mm. I do think that you're, that's quite some people in the Netherlands think that European way of approaching is, is better than the American way of approaching it. Um, like rather talking than, for instance, uh, which sounds dumb, like, um, yeah, looking more for international conflicts, which, which, some, which some might think. But um, yeah, not not into not taking into consideration like the budget that the US spends on the NATO, etc. So um, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> yeah. So so it's all sometimes a bit underappreciation. Um, but I do think subconsciously people value the US a lot and also aspire to be like the US. If you see uh, the big societal trends, I would say in Europe as a whole, but particularly in the Netherlands, which is small, open-minded and has to adopt something from, uh, from external countries. You see a lot of people sort of adopting the cultural shifts also from the US with a slight difference. Okay. I find it fascinating that other countries are so caught up in whoever our president is. Here's the sad thing is 
and maybe it's just me, maybe I'm, this is just a Steve thing and I'm just ignorant to it, but I couldn't, I hadn't, if you were to ask me who the prime minister was of the Netherlands before we got on this call, I could not even tell you. Like I had, I had no idea. Right. I heard it before, <laughs> you know, it's like, and if you were to ask me to name the leader of a bunch of countries, like I, I, I would have no idea. I'd be like, I, I have, I can't even tell you. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't watch it, but it seems like other countries are always caught up in who our president is for some reason, like it's entertaining or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe comes from these ancient times eh, that we're always we're looking for for like for like kings in a way, and U U.S. being basically I would say still the most powerful country in, in the world, and then the president representing the country. It's also it's it's very easy, but also I mean in in the EU, who do you have to blame? Who's the boss of Europe? It's very hard, but you know for the U.S. you can at least oh. um, <laughs> come up with the idea that it is the president. Gotcha. Okay. Now, very good. Now here's another really important question. When does happy hour start over in Rotterdam? Is that like at 3 PM? Is everybody having pints and stuff and the day's done or what, what's, what's the, what's the culture? <laughs> uh, you just asked me when I start for beer. Huh? Um, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say we have like a, a thing in the Netherlands, which is called uh, Mibo, which is called uh, Friday afternoon drinks. And that usually starts at 4 30 five on the friday so okay. that's uh so that's on a friday and otherwise six oh okay okay so it's it's pretty it's that's pretty comparable i guess to the u.s but friday at 6 p.m there's lots of people having happy hour in your town definitely i mean i mean <laughs> pre-covid yes <laughs> right 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 on a normal right gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. and is there like two hour lunch breaks or this is normal i don't know i hear things about other countries where there's like you know, nine weeks of vacation, lunch breaks are three hours. You know, I hear all these things about some other countries compared to ours. So I'm curious what your, you know, what your culture is like. I think we should move to those countries because it sounds pretty good. as labor condition. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we in the Netherlands are pretty typical in a way that I would say some people will eat early. They start, let's say 12 to 1230. Others um, like me and more starting at one. I would say, Anywhere between 30 minutes and, and 60 oh. minutes, that, that's common. Oh, it's all pretty standard. Okay. I thought you were going to give me something super fun and different. Like, oh, yeah, we take... No, we're, we're just as boring. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, two, two final questions here. Now, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 29. 29. Almost turning 30. Ooh, man. You're like, oh, man. Yeah, you're almost there. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm almost finished, John. <laughs> Uh, if you could call your 21 year old self coming out of college and tell him anything today based on this, this super fast, hardcore eight year run you've had, <laughs> what would you tell him today? It's so it's for sure going to be different than you expected. <laughs> maybe, maybe take it slightly less serious you don't have to figure it out like um in a way but on the other hand you don't know where you will go but especially be be prepared for the uh for the opportunity because if you then eh, if lux arrives you at least were prepared to uh take take full advantage of it mm. all right very good what is arthur's core purpose in life right now if you had to define your core purpose like why you wake up every day and why you're on this planet what is Arthur's core purpose? 
I had more macro goals, especially before I started my company. I think right now, of course, I want to enjoy what I do. I do feel that um, back in the days, I told you, you know, I was very, very excited about politics and that was my way to, to, to improve the world. Mm -hmm. I basically got a bit disappointed in politics and then I had the idea like, okay, corp corporations, they can fix the world problems. Then you see the large companies and you think like, no, that's not going to happen. All these different stakeholders uh, involved. And I do think that startups have the best chance uh, to make like an impact on the world. And in a way, as a venture capitalist, I enable that. In a, uh, to, to some to some extent um, and on a more personal mission driven thing is coming from the um, from Flexpad where it was like a very very tough time I had like two super supportive uh, board members that even when they knew you know that things were going sour they they supported me all the way and in a way trying to support companies on 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 that road and um, and trying to make them successful and have like an impact on the world. And in that way, try to operate in the top of your field. I think then I think that really excites me, um, at least in the, in, in, in the short term. And basically, if I get to that point, that will unlock a lot of opportunities to, uh, to do the next thing. Okay, very good. Arthur, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your story here. It was great, Steve. I really enjoyed this uh, open uh, and relaxed conversation with you. Oh.